0: Tom Parker has authored an interesting book. It's entitled, In One Day, The Things Americans Do in a Single Day. Did you know that on any given day, Americans buy 200 miles worth of neckties? About a quarter of a million ties. Americans spent $125,000 on tours and merchandise linked to Elvis Presley every single day. Americans deliver 100,000 speeches. And if they all stood on the same soapbox, the speakers would form a line 28 miles long. Every day in America, golfers score 110 holes in one. I've never got one, but somebody out there is hitting it close. Americans eat 170 million eggs and 12 million chickens. Every day in America, Americans are x-rayed 650,000 times. Americans chew 95 tons of sardines. 200 Americans become millionaires every day. Americans eat 6.5 million gallons of popcorn. Every single day. Every day in America, the federal government issues 100 pages of new rules and regulations. Of course, you figured that out. And finally, Americans every day purchase more than a million boxes of Cracker Jacks. Hey, every day in America, a lot gets accomplished. As ambitious as that sounds... This is nothing compared to what Jewish theology attempted to cram into a single day. The Old Testament pictured the kingdom of God coming to earth in one climactic moment. The world will change overnight. In one day, God rights all wrongs, wipes out the wicked, eradicates evil, erects a kingdom to rule over heaven and earth, and ushers in peace and righteousness. In just one colossal, breathtaking, dynamic day, Messiah breaks upon the earth, and suddenly all Jewish hopes and dreams will be realized. The Jews believed that God's kingdom and their Messiah would come in a single day. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, you realize that much will be accomplished in a single day. When Jesus returns a second time, the world will be altered. It will be turned on its ear. The kingdoms of man will end. God's kingdom will begin. Jesus will establish an earthly throne and a visible kingdom. All mankind will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. All that is going to happen in a single day. But that doesn't mean that in the interim, in the meantime, Jesus isn't active every day. We don't have to wait for the second coming to become part of God's kingdom. For Matthew chapter 13 teaches us that before God's kingdom comes visibly, and forcibly, and physically, and tangibly, and politically, and materialistically, it first comes spiritually. You see, the Jews knew that God's kingdom would come in a day. But what Jesus taught them was that that day would be the kingdom's beginning, not its climax. The kingdom will descend one day, but today it rises. Jesus planted the seeds of the kingdom at His first coming. And for the last 2,000 years, that kingdom has been growing suddenly and gradually and invisibly and spiritually. In Matthew 13, Jesus painted a new picture Of the kingdom of God he revealed truths about God's kingdom that were hidden from the Old Testament sages in fact verse 11 refers to the chapters eight parables as quote the mysteries of the kingdom this is a seminal scripture it explains how God's kingdom is taking shape and shaping the world you won't understand God's work in the world today without Matthew chapter 13 Well, verse 1 begins. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the sea. On our visits to Israel, we always like to stay in hotels that are right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the perfect place to just chill and collect your thoughts, especially after a long day. And it had been a particularly long day for Jesus. He had battled with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. He had delivered a man from demons. He had defended his ministry from slander. He had rebuffed his own family when they tried to pull him away from his calling. I'm sure Jesus sat down by the seashore to rest, (laughs) but his day was far from over. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now Jesus is about to reveal vital lessons. And remember, there's a great crowd. This, too, is before the days of electric amplification. But Jesus knows his physics. He knows that if he rolls out into the boat just a little off the shore, his voice will bounce off the water and be amplified to the crowd. Then he spoke many things to them in parables. Here are the first parables mentioned in the Gospels. Actually, the first mention of the Word. The word parable means to cast alongside. In other words, it's an illustration through a, it's the illustration of a lesson. The parable was a popular teaching at teaching technique at the time. Many of the Jewish rabbis had began to teach in parables, but as we'll see, no one used it as effectively as did Jesus. And Jesus said, he begins with a parable. Behold a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Now the wayside was a hard path that was traveled regularly. It was trampled down by feet and hooves and wagon wheels. Its dirt had become hard and impenetrable. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And there are places in Palestine today where the thin layer of topsoil covers a huge shelf of limestone. Seeds can sprout and grow in two or three inches of shallow soil. And then when the elements come, they beat them down and they disappear. He says, and some of the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. So we've got some seed on the wayside we've got some seed that has fallen into the stony places and we have some seed now that has fallen among the thorns It's been choked out but others fell on good or on fertile ground and yielded a crop some a hundredfold some 60 some 30. you know farmers claim that a good yield is eightfold but jesus promises a spiritual harvest of far greater proportions up to 100 fold verse 9 he who has ears to hear let him hear 13 times in matthew chapter 13 jesus uses the word "hear." a parable paints a picture but the real message lies below the surface a parable is figurative and if you're not listening if you're not paying close attention you'll hear the story but you'll miss the point did you know that poor listening skills cost American businesses $10 million per day. Costly, isn't it? It can be costly not to listen. People today are so bombarded with noises that we're experts at blocking out what we don't want to hear. We need to listen up to Jesus. Do you have ears to hear? And the disciples came and they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables he answered and said to them because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given let's explore this word mystery usually when we think of a mystery we naturally think of a whodunit a story with the smoking gun some surprising plot but in the biblical sense a mystery is a truth that can only be revealed by God. It's beyond the reach of human search or human reason. In Old Testament times, it was hidden. But it has now been revealed. A mystery is the unveiling of a sacred secret. Daniel 2 epitomized the Jewish understanding of God's kingdom. You remember the vision. A rock comes from heaven and strikes the kingdoms of the world. They crumble and they form a mountain, the kingdom of God. This is basically history in a nutshell. The rock, the Messiah, will strike and defeat the kingdoms of the earth, and the mountain of God will rise up from their ashes. God's kingdom will one day be political, and it will be militarily, and it will be an institutional triumph. All this is certainly true. This is how the present world order will end but part of the story was hidden from Daniel. It was hidden from all of the Old Testament prophets. Before the Messiah comes and smashes his enemies, he first sneaks behind enemy lines to retrieve the prisoners of war. In other words, the kingdom of God begins as a covert operation, not a frontal assault. Later in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is asked about this kingdom of God. They come to him and they say, when is this kingdom coming? We We don't see this kingdom you've been talking about. And that's when Jesus replies, the kingdom of God does not come with observation or with outward show. Nor will they say, oh, see here or see there, and be able to point to a kingdom. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. This was revolutionary insight. Before the king comes and sits on an earthly throne, he first occupies the throne in men's hearts. Before he destroys, he first comes to save. If you were a Jew steeped in the Old Testament theology, you would consider this chapter the most revolutionary in all of the Bible. You see, the Jews at the time, they longed for the coming of God's kingdom, but they had no idea of its initial invasion. If Jesus had taught these truths directly, they would have been too much for his listeners to handle. Imagine the conflict in their minds. But Jesus uses parables to sort of soften the blow. He lets the truths dawn on his hearers rather than slap them in the face. You see, a parable is sort of like a time-released medicine. What a parable does is rather than dumping the drugs into your system all at once... A time-release capsule gradually releases the truths, the contents, into your system. A straightforward declaration dumps the truth on its listeners, but a parable allows its hearers to sort of slowly and gradually absorb the truth in degrees. You're able to adjust your thinking as you digest the truth. A parable is sort of like a spiritual IV that releases the truth into you in manageable doses. Jesus goes on, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and he, who, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. In other words, it takes some initial spiritual sensitivity to really grasp spiritual truths. The man who knows God is the man who desires him. The man who's never met God doesn't know that God is what he needs. And he continues to lack. You could say, spiritually speaking, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. He who has gets more. He who lacks, it's taken away from him what he has. Verse 13 tells us, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And he quotes here Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, which says, Perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. This is kind of, we need to grasp, we need to think through this a minute. Parables were a spiritual device that sort of qualified the listener to what he was hearing. In other words, the parable would sell over the heads of some folks, the folks with little spiritual discernment. In fact, it was an indictment against you if you walked away after hearing Jesus' parable thinking that it was just sort of a nice story, you know, but you didn't really catch it. It meant you had no discernment in the first place. The parable had the opposite effect, though, on people with ears to hear. It became a window through which they could understand du- deeper truths and, and understand its application. Several years ago, a West Virginia mine shaft collapsed. And for three and a half days, the men in that mine shaft were trapped in the darkness. When rescue workers reached the trapped men, their lanterns shined into the dark mine. The seven men began to shout for joy. But during their celebration, one of the victims asked, Hey, why doesn't someone turn on a light? It was the first time that that man knew that he had been blinded in the accident. He didn't know he was blind until the light had been shined into his darkness. You see, the parables of Jesus were also lights into the darkness. For those who didn't grasp their implications, the parables proved to serve. It only proved their spiritual blindness. Those that could see already, they were illuminated by the light. But Jesus says to his disciples... Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is about to divulge truths the Old Testament prophets long to hear. He's going to reveal to His disciples the mysteries of the kingdom. Verse 18. Therefore... Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. Now notice several truths that Jesus tells us now about the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom does not begin in the form of a war. Instead, it begins... With a word. You see, Jews thought that the reign of God would fall like a hammer and pound out God's will. But Jesus says the kingdom of God comes as a seed that's planted in man's heart. The seed, of course, is God's word. There is life in the seed, it grows wherever the seed is received. This means that the kingdom of God can be resisted. Again, to the Jews, this was a revolutionary notion. In its initial phases, the kingdom will not overtake the rebels and shackle them into submission. Jews assumed that God's kingdom would steamroll over man's will. But amazingly, Jesus says the kingdom requires our cooperation. In fact, the growth of the seed depends on the condition of our heart. And the human heart comes in four conditions. Here he speaks of the seed that was thrown onto the wayside. Again, the wayside was the hard ground, the beaten path. This is the heart where hopes and dreams and optimism have been trampled down, where negativity is habitual. As soon as the seed hits ground like that, the birds of skepticism and cynicism eat them up. Satan's vultures devour the seed. The wayside is a faithless heart. But here's another type of ground. But he, all, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Here is the shallow heart. Eternity Magazine did a study of the respondents at a large evangelistic crusade. In the week of meetings, 4,106 decisions were made for Jesus Christ. But within three months, only 3% of the people were still attending church. That means 3,981 people came forward that week, had an emotional moment, but failed to follow through. Hey, this is the stony ground. Jesus just described it. It's the shallow heart with superficial faith. It reacts to an emotional stirring, but it fails to sink roots and make genuine commitment. And what reveals the depths of our devotion? What reveals whether our righteousness has really taken root in the depths of our being? It's always the same. Tribulation and persecution. It's when trouble strikes. That's when faith gets tested. Well, verse 22 tells us, now, when he had received seed among the thorns, this is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Here's a third type of ground. It's the distracted heart. Here's a person who chooses to follow Jesus without choosing to renounce the toys and pleasures in pursuits of this world. Do you know that there are many people like this who choose to follow Jesus but don't choose to renounce the world? And what happens to these people? They get sucked right back in. Like Paul's sidekick. You remember the infamous Demas? He was guilty of backsliding from God. It was said of Demas, or Paul said, Demas has forsaken me. And why? Having loved this present world. You see, the problem with some of us is not that we don't want God. We do. But you see, we also want other competing attractions. We desire the very bait that will end up destroying us. One author writes, We want to be a saint, but we also want to feel sensations experienced by sinners. We want to be pure, but we also want to, be, we want to, be, we want to experience and taste all of life. We want to serve the poor and live simply, but we also want the comforts of the rich. We want the depth of solitude, but we don't want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch television. See, we live these conflicted lives, don't we? And it's the distracted heart that sells out. And the commitment that was made to Jesus is no longer. So, There's the hard ground, the wayside. There's the stony ground. There's the thorny ground. Or the faithless heart, the shallow heart, the distracted heart. But there's one more heart. Verse 23. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. It's interesting here. Notice only one-fourth of the farmer's seed took root. Don't get discouraged if you share your faith and the people that receive the good news, and they, they they don't receive it. The people who listen don't receive it. Don't get upset when that happens. As a matter of fact, our Lord himself predicted that if you have a one out of four success rate, you're doing good. That's what he said. You know, the seed gets thrown out, but only one out of four of the places that That receive it end up responding and it takes root and it affects a change. Notice too, the seed that grows here is the same seed that didn't grow earlier. In other words, there's nothing wrong with our seed, the word of God. The problem is not the seed, it's always the soil. This is why Jeremiah told the people of his day, break up the fallow ground. In other words, along with the seed, it needs to be received with repentance we need to plow up our pride. We need to till over our stubbornness. and our. We need to humble our hearts. We need to have fertile ground. This is the ground that receives the word of God and allows it to grow. The parable of the sower. The next parable is known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. The tares are probably what the Jews called the bearded darnel. It's a poisonous ryegrass that looks like wheat until the ear of grain appears. has the same color as wheat, the same shape, the same smell. But it produces no head of grain. Often in the Middle East, these tares became a means of sabotage. Your enemy would sneak into your field, usually under the cover of darkness, and he would sow the bearded darnel among your wheat. It would grow up right there alongside the wheat stalks. But you can't weed the tares for fear of pulling up the wheat by mistake. They look so identical. The tares would suck the nutrients from the soil that could have been going to feed the wheat. A farmer had no other choice. He had to just let it be. He had to let the wheat and tares grow up together until the harvest time. And this is what the farmer does in this story. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. And here's the farmer's instructions. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Again, this was such a novel way of seeing the kingdom of God. The Jews foresaw instant and absolute judgment. But Jesus envisions the kingdom growing up within the midst of an evil world. Before the kingdom abolishes evil, it first coexists with evil and has to fight and overcome it. In other words, the wheat and the tares grow up side by side. This is why kingdom living, following Jesus, requires patience. Often we get frustrated when we see the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper it's so frustrating we get angry we get upset but we need to be patient we need to wait until the end of the age until the harvest time that's when god is going to execute judgment and that's when god is going to provide the separation notice verses 31 and 32 are the parable of the mustard seed another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The mustard seed was the smallest seed known to the Jewish farmers. It was also a proverbial way of referring to a minute quantity. Oh, that's just as small as a mustard seed. A mustard seed conjured up notions of smallness if one or two all you had they would be practically imperceptible and Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom of God begins small and insignificant in fact the kingdom of God is imperceptible no one really notices it growing it sort of develops below the world's radar screen the world you see is impressed with flesh and with flash Rarely do its headlines showcase God's kingdom and God's work. But the kingdom is still growing. Unnoticed maybe. Behind the scenes. But it is still growing. And one day it will fill the whole earth. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who submit to God's rule now will one day rule the world. Think of how the mustard seed grew. Jesus' earthly ministry was limited to just a few years and just to a few square miles. Jesus was largely overlooked by the Roman historians of His day. Christianity was really a minor movement in a secluded corner. And Jesus left behind no formidable army. Just 120 troops and they were scared as rabbits. It was a small beginning, wasn't it? But over the centuries... Christianity has swept the world and back again. And this is always how the kingdom of God spreads. God begins with next to nothing. Just a man or a vision or some faith. Little backing, few numbers, no publicity. But God begins to grow His work suddenly, inconspicuously, under the world's radar, just as a seed grows in the soil. The kingdom of God is and will always be an underground movement. At the end of the age, God's kingdom, the kingdom that began as a mustard seed, it grows into a great tree, Jesus predicts. And the birds of the air will nest in its branches. In other words, one day the world's nations will gather to God and be part of His kingdom. But the point of the parable is not to describe the kingdom's end. It's to describe the nature of its existence in the current age. And for now, the kingdom of God continues to grow as a small, insignificant mustard seed. George Eldon Ladd has a great book on this, and in it he gives this explanation. The kingdom of God, which one day shall fill the earth, is here among men. In a form which was never before expected, it is like an insignificant seed of mustard. This tiny thing is, however, God's kingdom and is therefore not to be despised. Another parable He spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. The three measures of meal was the daily portion of bread for the average Jewish home. It represented the routine, the common, the colorless living of the Jews. And Jesus promises that the kingdom will act like leaven. It will permeate and it will infiltrate the bland bread. This is what the kingdom of God does for us, for our everyday lives. It gives us fullness. It gives us meaning. It injects the eternal into our everyday. It injects meaning into our mundane lives. It gives our lives flavor and taste and excitement. The parable of the leaven also illustrates the kingdom's inside-out influence. You see, earthly kingdoms use laws and legislation to conform behavior. But God's kingdom relies on God's Spirit and His Word to transform character. God uses persuasion, not coercion. It's been said, Caesar hoped to reform men by changing institutions and laws. Christ wished to remake institutions and lessen laws by changing men. This is the work of the kingdom. Earthly kingdoms rule from the top down, from the outside in. But God's kingdom injects the heart with the serum of love. And that love filters out from the inside out through every area of their life. Verse 34 says, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And here is Psalm 78 verse 2 saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. I like that. Eugene Peterson puts it, I will open my mouth and tell stories. I will bring out into the open things hidden since the world's first day. What a privilege to have heard Jesus unwrap these truths that had been packaged since the beginning of time. (laughs) What a privilege to read and study them today. I love this line. I will open my mouth and tell stories, Jesus says. You know, a story is a powerful thing. And Jesus was quite the storyteller, wasn't he? Jesus didn't invent the parable, but He perfected its use. No doubt about that. Author Lois Cheney, she writes of Jesus' storytelling ability. Let me read it to you. Who was Jesus? He was a storyteller. He told stories. He was the world's greatest storyteller. Ask Him a question, He'd answer with a story. Give Him a crowd of people listening attentively, He told them stories. Give him an argument, he'd give you a story. Give him a real tricky, catchy question, he'd give you a real tricky, catchy story. Have you ever watched a seven-year-old listening, inhaling a story? Eyes wide, mouth slung open, mind churning. He lives and accepts and believes. He is totally absorbed. This man, God, Jesus... He was a good storyteller. Jesus knew what he was doing. (laughs) There is power in a good story. That's why you should read stories to your grandkids and your kids and tell them stories. That's why people enjoy sitting around the campfire and telling stories. That's why I can be teaching along and all of a sudden I'll tell a story and I'll grab half the congregation that had been dozing off to sleep. There's power in a great story. And Jesus was the master storyteller well then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying explain to us the parable of the tares of the field the idea that evil this evil world could and would coexist along with God's kingdom this troubled the disciples and so they asked Jesus for an explanation Clarification: this was so different from what they'd heard concerning God's kingdom he answered and said to them he who sows the good seed is the son of man the field is the world the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom but the tares are the sons of the wicked one notice though the field is not the church Jesus identifies the field as what The world, not the church. Nowhere does it say in Scripture that the church should tolerate unrepentant attitudes and false teachers and blatant sin in the church. Rather, the New Testament tells us that we should mark such people. And if they refuse to repent, boot them out of the body. In the church, we need discipline. But with the world, we need tolerance. Jesus continues. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth." And notice here Jesus' depictions of hell. I mean, it sounds like to me he's talking about a literal place. Hell is literal. It involves actual pain and torment and regret, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hey, hell is not some fairy tale or some figurative use of speech. Hell is a real place. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Jews thought that the kingdom of God would come with the end of all evil. But not so. In this present age, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan coexist. The tares grow up alongside the wheat. Often we wish, I know I wish daily, That God would judge the wicked. Especially when the brunt of someone's sin. Is me. (laughs) When I'm the victim of someone's evil. I wish that God chose to act right now. But God instead chooses to wait. God wants to keep his executioners. You see from making a mistake. It's only after Jesus raptures the church. It's only after the wheat is in the barn. Does he begin to judge the tares. We'll have to wait till the end of the age for the final judgment. In the meantime, don't be confused when you see the wicked prosper. Again, the kingdom of heaven, and he moves to another parable, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? It's a wonderful story. Boaz was a wealthy landowner. He redeemed the field of his relative Elimelech, not because he wanted another field. He didn't need another chunk of dirt. As the family redeemer, not only could he reclaim the relative's land, but he could also, if he did, marry his widow. And that interests Boaz. He was in love with the beautiful Ruth. And what did Boaz do? He bought the field in order to get the treasure. And this is why Jesus has redeemed the world. Not because he needed another planet. I mean, the universe is his. As a matter of fact, there's nothing really that distinguishing about planet Earth. One astronomer calls the Earth a fifth-rate planet revolving around a tenth-rate sun in a forgotten corner of the universe. There's nothing special about the third rock from the sun that Jesus, especially that Jesus would want to sell all, even his own life. In order to purchase this earth, oh no. He didn't redeem the world to get a planet. He was interested in the treasure that was hidden in the field. He paid the price for the field because he found the treasure. And that treasure, my friend, is you. That's why Jesus bought this planet. Because he wanted you, the treasure in the field. You're the treasure for which Jesus sold all he had, even gave up his own life to obtain. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Notice again, both the treasure and the pearl are hidden from view. The treasure is buried in the field. The pearl is on the bottom of the ocean. Likewise, don't expect this world to notice your value and your worth. The esteem that comes from worldly pursuits is transitory. It's fleeting. Our true value is only measured by what Jesus is willing to pay to obtain us. He bought the whole world to retrieve you. He gave all that He had to buy you. That makes you of great worth and great value. We are of infinite value to Jesus. You know, there are scholars that view the treasure in the previous parable as Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is viewed as Jehovah's special treasure. She's been scattered and she's been hid in the earth for 2,000 years, but in these last days, Jesus has gathered His people, and He will redeem the world to rescue Israel. Now, if the treasure is Israel, then the pearl is probably the church. The pearl is found in the sea. And throughout the scriptures, the sea is symbolic of the vast ocean of Gentile population. Jesus plucks this precious pearl out of the ocean. That's interesting. That the pearl is the only gem that doesn't need to be cut to bring out its beauty. You know how a pearl grows? It grows through irritation and frustration. Listen to the description of the pearl's growth. A pearl begins as nothing more than an irritating speck of sand in the shell of an oyster. The oyster coats that troublesome speck with layer upon layer of crystalline substance called nacre, which hardens and becomes the actual pearl. The more irritating the grain of sand the more beautiful the pearl. And isn't that a beautiful picture of how we as Christians grow? How we grow spiritually? We grow through irritation. Someone asked me this morning, did you have a good week? I said, no, not really. I had a pretty rough week. She said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, why are you sorry? I can't grow unless I have a rough week every now and then. We grow through irritation. We grow through frustration. We grow through trying times and stretching times. Seldom do we grow in the good times, do we? It's in the difficulties. That's what causes us to trust in God and causes us to grow. The one thing that will ruin a pearl is if it's touched by human perspiration. And the one thing that will arrest our spiritual growth is to go off on our own efforts and to try to sweat it out and to get our hands on the work rather than just remaining tucked away in the oyster of God's will, just trusting God, just allowing those difficulties to disciple us and those trials to train us. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. Now, the seventh parable in the chapter is the parable of the dragnet. Which, by the way, has nothing to do with Joe Friday. I mean, if you've even heard of Joe Friday and dragnet. It's only us 50-year-olds that know about dragnet. Now, a dragnet was a fishing net that was sort of thrown out and swept through the water it caught up both edible and inedible fish. Throw it in the water today and also pull up an old tire and a can and a Coke bottle and that kind of thing. When God's Spirit awakens or works in a community, it sweeps through like a dragnet. And all kinds of people get caught up in the enthusiasm. You know, some folks jump on the bandwagon for the wrong reasons. You know, they come forward because it's cool. Other people are doing it. Maybe I will too. Or they come to the services and they get caught up in a meeting because they want to imp- pacify their wife, get her off their back. You know, well, I'll go for it if it'll shut her up. Or maybe impress a girlfriend or, or maybe buddy up with a boss. Or, or maybe they come and get involved because they like the, like the music. Or maybe they just felt it felt right at the time. But you see, the problem was there was no real commitment. The disciples experienced this firsthand, didn't they? Jesus sort of swept the drag th- raz- dragnet through and, and guess what got caught up? There were 11 disciples who loved Jesus and ended up being his followers. But there was one that also got caught in the net, wasn't there? A man by the name of Judas who was not really one of them who ended up a betrayer. And God is saying that his kingdom is like this dragnet. All kinds of people get caught up in it. But it won't be until the end of the age that he separates out the good From the bad. This is what he tells us in verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth. Separate the wicked from among the just. And cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And again. Notice hell is a place of conscious awareness. Its residents suffer a literal agony. Now here's an interesting thought. Just throw it out for your investigation. If the treasure is Israel, and if the pearl is the church, then is it possible that the good fish from the dragnet refer to those who will be saved in the Great Tribulation? You know, the Bible does teach that there will be people who will miss the rapture. They'll enter the Great Tribulation, and they'll experience many of God's judgments. And yet, in the midst of it, they decide to resist the mark of the beast. And even under the threat of death, they decide to follow Jesus. Could it be that these good fish that are found in the dragnet are those who are saved in the great tribulation? Well, in verses 51 and 52, we find the final kingdom parable. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? Well, let me ask you tonight, have you understood all these things? Well, maybe a little of it, but... Go back and study it. Go back and pursue it. Go back and and delve deeper and try to understand these things. As I said, you can't understand God's work in the world today without understanding Matthew chapter 13. He said, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. They didn't want to appear dumb. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now, you buy a new house. Should you decorate that house with new furniture or with old furniture? Which is right? Well, both are right. It's not a right and wrong situation. It's not an either or. Well, it might be what you can afford, but, but it's not a right or wrong kind of a situation. And the same is true with the Old Testament understanding of God's kingdom and the New Testament understanding of God's kingdom. One was not right and the other wrong. Both perspectives were true. And both perspectives needed to be grasped to truly understand the nature of God's kingdom. In a single day, God will establish an earthly, political, tangible, dominating kingdom. But today... A spiritual, invisible kingdom has invaded the hearts of men unnoticed by this world. That's why new ideas and old ideas to come, to combine to give us a full picture of what God's kingdom is all about. Chapter 13 ends with a homecoming of sorts. Verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Of course, you notice here that Jesus had at least four half-brothers And two half-sisters, which creates all kinds of problems for Roman Catholic theology. You know, Roman Catholics, they believe in a doctrine called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Obviously, that's not true. Mary had at least six other kids. It sounds more like the perpetual fertility of Mary. (laughs) Tell the Pope I said that. Now, Jesus is teaching in his hometown synagogue. His peers are impressed with his wisdom, but they know his brothers and his sisters. They grew up with Jesus, didn't they? And they were too proud to think that Jesus was anything special. That's the kid we played in the sandbox together with. That's the kid we went to first grade with. They they were too proud to admit that Jesus was anything more than a boy from the hood. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Sadly, pride caused their unwillingness to believe. And Matthew tells us, So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. The pastor who serves faithfully in the same place for many years. The husband who is loyal to his spouse for many, many years. The wife who faithfully serves and helps her, her husband and her family. The employee who minds his business and just works hard day in and day out. We all tend to get taken for granted, don't we? It's human nature. We grow used to their presence and we forget what life would be like in their absence. Often a man or a woman of God is without honor in his own house. Verse 58 is such a sad verse. Now he who did, and now, excuse me. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let that sort of sink in. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus was limited by the townspeople's unbelief. Psalm 78 verse 41 says of Israel, They limited the Holy One of Israel. Did you know you could limit God? Did you know that there are blessings that He has earmarked for you, but He cannot give them to you because you refuse to believe? This is always what hinders God's work in our life, unbelief. God refuses to work and act where there is a lack of faith. Author Lois Cheney, she writes of this incident in Nazareth. She says, there was a place where the unbelief was so great that Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, could not heal and help. And so he left them. And then she adds, Has anyone seen Jesus lately? Has anyone seen Jesus lately at your house? In this church? In my life? Or have we limited the Holy One of Israel? Have we refused to believe and trust Him as we should and therefore limited the blessings that He might want to pour out, the miracles that He might want to do, the healings, That he might want to affect, the lives that he might want to save and change. Has anyone seen Jesus lately? If not, it's because our faith has grown weak. We need to trust God. Understand the kingdom of God is not in hibernation, we're not just waiting for the day when Jesus splits the eastern sky. His Spirit is at work in our lives right now. The kingdom comes, not just in one day, but every day when we trust Him. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word and for this wonderful chapter. Lord, I pray that we would grasp these truths. They're so important. Help us to understand. Help us to get on the same page that You're on, Lord. Lord, help us to adjust our expectations and our understandings with Your plans and with Your purposes. Help us to understand the nature of Your kingdom. Lord, we thank You that Your kingdom is at work. Though we don't see it, though it goes unnoticed by the world, though it sort of flies under the world's radar screen, though it's small and insignificant at times, nevertheless, it is deep within the earth and it is growing. And it is sprouting. It is changing. And it is affecting things from the inside out, even our own lives. And so, Lord, help us to understand the kingdom of God doesn't come with outward show. But the kingdom of God is within us. And help us, Lord, to be citizens of that kingdom and lovers of that kingdom and those that would spread that kingdom to those who believe. So help us, Lord, to be workers of the kingdom. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.